Let us turn then in the word of God to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through to 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Who were once enlightened is the expression especially I would highlight tonight. Now verses 4 through to 6 form a very difficult text. You probably are all aware of that. It maybe has even alarmed you at times. And you've wondered what it meant. And maybe you have misunderstood it. And your hearts have been alarmed. Now I'm not going to go into all the difficulties about it. Suffice to say that the difficulties of the text have led to a half a dozen or so different interpretations. And I'm not sure that I'm satisfied with any one of them. But with a difficult text like this, we have to do the best we can and try to come to the mind of the Holy Spirit as revealed in it. Now, one of the questions has turned on the description of persons in verses 4 and 5. You'll see here a fivefold description of persons who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. So that fivefold description of persons who have experienced all of these things. And there are those who say, well, these are Christians. This is a description of true Christians. And then there are those who say, hold on a minute, because of the wider context, because of other difficulties in this passage, we can't conclude that, that they are true Christians. Because if they fall away and can't be renewed, and there's a great debate about what that means, as being renewed again unto repentance, but there are those who think it means a certain thing, and therefore they say they can't be true Christians if they fall away to this extent so that they can't be renewed again to repentance. So there are those who say, well, they're just professing Christians. They're not real Christians. They're not true Christians. Now, if we say they were true Christians and fall away, are we not teaching that you can lose salvation? Some have thought that. And of course, Arminians, they don't have a problem with that. And they say, yes, they were saved, they're true Christians, but this falling away and this not being renewed again unto repentance, this is being lost, this is losing their salvation so they're happy to say, yes, they're true Christians, and true Christians can lose their salvation. And then the Reformed, they have a problem with that, 
And they tend to say, no, this is just profession. These are not true Christians. These are just associating with the church in external means. And such people, if they fall away, were not truly born again people at all. And so they're not true Christians if they fall away. And there's debate about what this falling away is and what it means. Now, we have to be faithful to the word of God And as you look at these five things, can we honestly say these are not born-again people? Can we really say that? Once enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Can we really say these are not Christians? I think there's a difficulty in that. And I think there is a description here of safe. In fact, I don't think you'll get a better description of a Christian in the Word of God as this. This There's a full-blown definition of what it is to be a believer. What the child of God has experienced. And of course... Whenever I say that, this is a description of believers. I know what you're thinking. How then is verse 6 possible? That it's impossible for them to be renewed again unto repentance. How can we apply that to true believers? And that's where the difficulty lies, you see. And why there are all these different interpretations. I think there's a way out of the difficulty. There are a couple of interpretations that are possible, even allowing for this to be a description of true Christians, and the way that I understand it will, I trust, become more manifest as we work our way through the sermon tonight. We are, however, dealing with the text as a fivefold description of Christians. What is a Christian? What are saints? Here is a description, and it's not one or the other. It's all five. You'll notice the conjunction. There are four conjunctions who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. They've experienced all five. Not one or two, but the whole package. This has been their experience. Now you notice the central one. I always like to go to the central one. The one in the middle is is one that seems to stand out. And the one in the middle is we're made partakers. Actual partakers. The word is partners. Made partners. Of the Holy Ghost. That's a very strong expression. Partners together. Partners together with all Christians and with all saints. Partners not of a profession merely. But partners of the Holy Ghost. That's what the text says. Partners with a divine person. Now, I cannot see how this describes someone unregenerate. 
I cannot see how this describes a hypocrite partner with the Holy Spirit. The true Christian has the Holy Spirit indwelling him. He has the Holy Spirit in his life. Paul has already used this word partner. He said in chapter 1 verse 9 concerning the word to Christ. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That's the same word, partners. Partaking, above the partakers. And Christ has been anointed with the oil above his fellows. But they have enjoyed it too. Because it's come down from the head and those who are partners with him in fellowship with him, they partake of the same Spirit of God as well from the head through Christ. So Christ partakes with the Holy Spirit and believers partake of the Holy Spirit in their union to Christ. The body of Christ partakes of the Holy Ghost as well coming down from the head above thy fellows coming down to the partners those in fellowship with him in the Holy Spirit. So the Christ partakes of the Holy Spirit above measure. But true Christians partake of the Holy Spirit in a lower measure. But it's a definition of Christians. Partakers of the Holy Ghost. Not a definition of hypocrites. Not a definition of false professors. Christians have received the Spirit in believing the Gospel. You remember the Apostle says to the Ephesians, in whom you trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the earnest of our inheritance until the day the redemption of the purchased possession. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit, foretasting as an earnest of the full participation in the glory. So that's the central one. That, that's, the, that's the heart of it. And then either side of that, there is this emphasis on tasting. Have tasted of the heavenly gift, verse 4. Verse 5, have tasted the good word of God and, the verb tasting again implied, the powers of the world to come. So partaking is in the middle, but either side of that, this tasting that leads to this climax. Now there are those who say, well, tasting is not really partaking. It's not really eating. It's not really drinking. But tasting in the Bible is a description of Christian experience. In fact, that's really all we're, any of us are doing. We're only tasting. We don't partake of the whole feast until glory. We don't sit down to the marriage supper of the Lamb until glory. We only get tastes of it here below. Tasting. Tasting is a term that the participation has commenced. We're all tasters as Christians. As I said, none of us fully partake until glory, but we participate now by tasting. And this tasting can mean participation. 
and partaking. You remember how it says in the Bible, Christ tasted death for us. That doesn't mean he didn't really partake, he just tasted it. No, no, he tasted death for us. He partook of death. He got it really into his taste buds. He really experienced it. And Christians really experience these things. They taste them. Just as a person tastes sweetness. He knows it's sweetness. He's experienced the sweetness. He loves the sweetness. And this tasting is like that. A Christian tastes the things of God. And that's what we have here. Three of these five things relate to tasting. You will know that Peter said, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So it's Christians that have tasted. Not, not hypocrites. They've never really tasted. They've never really been addicted to the sweetness of Christ. The Song of Songs, you remember, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Tasting, you see, the sweetness of grace. Tasting that the Lord is gracious. These people have actually tasted. How could they be hypocrites? How could they be false? They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the good word of God. And they've tasted the powers of the world to come. Three of the five things relate to tasting. First of all, the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? Well, you know what the heavenly gift is. It's Christ himself. The unspeakable gift of God. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. The gift of the father. The heavenly gift. Christians have tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the sweetness of Jesus Christ. And so he is the gift of the father. God says to his son, I'll give thee, I'll give thee a light to the Gentiles. The heavenly gift. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The heavenly gift to us to taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then not only the heavenly gift, but it's the good word of God that they taste as well. Not the false doctrine, not the false word, but the good word. Remember that word that we saw that's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword? They've tasted that word of God. They've tasted its truth. They've tasted its searching power in their hearts and their lives. They've tasted its transforming grace. They've tasted it in its sweetness. They've felt its sharpness. And it has quickened them and awakened them and created faith in them. And then the powers of the world to come, they have tasted too. What does that mean? Well, what an awful place this would be if Christ did not come into the world. He broke in upon it in his grace. 
And he dealt with the impurities in this world. And that's why he healed the leper and he raised the dead. He made the blind to see and he made the deaf to hear. Because the powers of the world to come broke in. That, that world to come has already come, you know. We're not waiting for it at the end. We're waiting for the full manifestation of it. But whenever Christ came, that the power of the kingdom already broke in upon us. That's why people are saved, you know. Because the powers of the world to come break in and raise the spiritually dead and make the blind to see, make the deaf to hear and take away the impurity of the sin in the human heart. And these people have tasted those powers. Powers that raise the dead. Powers that cleanses the leprosy of sin. Powers that open the eyes to see. Powers that make them to hear. They've tasted that. So, so again, it's, it's a description of the saved. The powers of the world to come, of the age to come. The kingdom of God has come, the Bible says. But the one that I want to focus on is the first one. Who were once enlightened. Once enlightened. A Christian, that's where it all begins, you see. That's where it starts. Once enlightened. That's a description of every child of God. Once they were enlightened. That's not a description of a hypocrite. That's not a description of a false professor who falls away and apostatizes and turns his back completely on Jesus Christ. Every Christian was once enlightened. Once enlightened. You see, the unconverted are blind and in darkness. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. The Bible says that they sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Unconverted, unregenerate, slaves of Satan in his prison house. That's the state of men by nature. Blind and in darkness. No light, but the gospel comes... Christ comes, the word of God comes, grace comes, and the light of the world shines in upon them. And they're enlightened. See, the gospel and Christ are light, pure light, bright light. And in conversion, true conversion, the sinner is brought out of darkness into light. True conversion is that. He is illuminated. He sees. Didn't we read there in Acts? To open their eyes. To turn them from darkness unto light. From the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. That is in me. You see how it begins. This being delivered. This being receiving the forgiveness of sins. This being partakers of the inheritance. This sanctification by faith. But do you see where it all begins? Their eyes opened. And turned from darkness into light. It's dramatic. It's noticeable. It's a real experience in the conversion of every Christian. Darkness to light. There are two words here. Once enlightened 
It's a very important word once in the epistle to the Hebrews. Paul knows very well when he uses it and what exactly he means when he uses it. Once doesn't mean twice. Once doesn't mean a third time. Once doesn't mean it has to happen again. That it has to be renewed again. Once means what it says once. Once enlightened. Once. Paul frequently uses this word in Hebrews. And as I said, doctrinally it is a very important word. You remember how he said the high priest alone went once every year into the holy place. Every year just, just the once. He didn't go again next week. He didn't go again next month. He didn't repeat it once. Just the once. And you remember Christ, he didn't suffer often from the foundation of the world, but once in the end of the world, that's where we are now, the end times of the world, once in the end of the world, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once. He doesn't have to appear again to put away sin. He doesn't have to appear again to die on the cross. Once. Only once. It is not repeatable. It is not renewable. It cannot be done again. It's impossible to be done again. Once. It's appointed unto men once to die. Just once. You'll die once, you'll not die again. It's not repeatable. The experience cannot be experienced again. You only have to experience it once. Once for all. Once to die. Once to give himself a sacrifice. Once to take away sins. Once enlightened. Just once. Once is enough. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. So you see how often Paul uses this word? And he's very careful to put it in here. Once enlightened. And as I said, once is enough. Not repeatable. It doesn't need to be repeatable. Your enlightenment cannot be renewed. If you fall and sin, it doesn't need to be renewed if you fall and sin. You see, the scene cannot be totally undone. And it does not need to be repeated. The eyes of them that see, the Bible says, shall not be dim. And the ears of them that hear shall hearken. That is, they shall continue to hearken. And so if the Lord has enlightened you as a sinner, and you're a Christian, you don't need to be enlightened again. You don't need to be saved again. You don't need to be baptized again. You don't have to be renewed again in that sense. It is true that Christians grow and get more light. And they get more knowledge and more understanding. It is true that Christians see clearer as time goes on. As the Lord opens up the word to them more and more. It is true that 
we don't see all at once whenever we were converted. We didn't see everything that we were converted, did we? But we saw, I once was blind, but now I see. I don't see everything, but I can see what I never saw before. I have light now. I can see. I have enlightenment now. I got it once. I was getting brighter and brighter until the great day. But I don't have to experience that coming out of the darkness. That being saved again. That being born again again. That can't be repeated. That's not repeatable. It's impossible to repeat that. That's what the Bible says. Impossible to do that. And if you tried to do that again, you would be bringing shame to the cross of Christ. So there is progressive enlightenment in the Christian life. The Bible teaches that. Paul prayed that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you may know more and more. The psalmist prayed, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. But he wasn't talking about coming out of the darkness. He was talking about seeing more and more in the brightness. Paul here, however, is not speaking about Christian growth. He's not speaking about progression when he uses this expression. He is speaking about the very nature of a Christian, what it is to be a Christian. He's speaking about the foundations of being a Christian. He's mentioned the first principles, the principles of what it is to be a sea of man, the doctrine of baptisms and all of that, and of repentance unto life, faith. What you get understood whenever you come out of the darkness into the light. He's speaking in that context. None of that's repeatable. You don't have that experience again, of being saved again, being converted again, like that. So he's speaking about the foundation that does not have to be laid again. Yes, we build on the foundation. And he has been telling us about that. But he also has been talking about not laying the foundation again. Not renewing it again. Impossible. So you don't have to be saved again if you sin. You don't have to be enlightened again if you backslide or fall away. You don't. So we know that he's not speaking of progressive sanctification, but conversion. For he uses this very word later on in his epistle, chapter 10, verse 32. Call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated. The same word enlightened. Call those days back whenever you were converted. Call those days back after you were enlightened, after you were illuminated, after you came out of the darkness into the light. The great fight of afflictions that met you as soon as you stepped out into the light. Call, call to remembrance that, your conversion, your illumination, your enlightenment. That once enlightenment, that once conversion that you had. So here he's speaking of conversion in chapter 10, verse 32. And that's what he's speaking of here in uh, this portion, chapter 6. And this is a once non-repeatable experience of being born again, of being saved. That's when the battle began. That's when the trouble started. That's when Satan became the adversary 
and no longer, as it were, our master and we as slave. Whenever we came into the light, that's when the real battle began. Recall that once enlightened. Don't forget that day. Satan's prisoner was gone that day. And the battle started. This brings you then into a a state of conversion, a state of salvation. It's not a passing phase, it's an abiding state, being a Christian. So Paul knows what he's talking about, you see. Because we read about his conversion on the Damascus Road, didn't we? And it was like this. Paul thinks of his own conversion when he writes this down. Once enlightened, I remember it well. He talked about it all the time. Three, three times it's recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. This day of his enlightenment. This day of his illumination. This day when he came out of the dungeon of darkness in Satan's kingdom. It's not just that pagans are enlightened. Even Jews, when they come into the kingdom of Christ, are enlightened. Once enlightened. Jews need enlightened, even today. And Gentiles need enlightened today. And I think as Paul preaches here, he must recall his own conversion. Once enlightened. I don't think you could read this chapter, this verse, without thinking of Paul's conversion. As he journeyed near to Damascus, suddenly there shined round about him a light. A light. A light from heaven. He fell to the earth. He heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. And the light shone in. Lord, what was I have me to do? The light shone in. Even though he was blind, even though he was darkness, physically speaking, into his soul, the light shone as never before. He saw it. He saw himself. He saw himself as a prisoner of Satan. He saw himself as one who is brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. He was enlightened, spiritually speaking. And you remember the story at conversion. It's all here in Hebrews 6 and it's all there about his conversion as well. Ananias, he entered into his house. He put his hands on him. Did you read about the laying on of hands here? He put his hands on him. Paul's thinking of his conversion day. He laid his hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus had appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, has sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes that had been scales. And he received sight, that's his physical sight now, and he arose and was baptized. He laid his hands on him. He was baptized. It's all here. The doctrine of baptisms. The laying on of hands. This is conversion. This is being a catechist in baptism. It's not repeatable. It's a once thing. Paul had that experience of conversion. Once enlightened. The foundation and what I'm saying congregation can't be laid again. Even if you sin. Even if you fall, it can't be led again. It's not repeatable. It's not renewable. It's impossible. 
It didn't mean Paul didn't need more light because he got more light and he gained more knowledge. He couldn't write Romans the day he was converted. He couldn't write this epistle to the Hebrews the day he was converted. No, that took years of understanding the, the Lord in the light of his word. But he came out of the darkness that day. That's not repeatable. Even when you fall, even when you sin, even when you get away from the Lord, even when you terribly backslide. And so it takes time to see more and more. But when one comes out of darkness into light, he doesn't see all yet, but it's a lot different from being in total darkness. I once was blind, now I see. It's dramatic as that. I don't see everything, but boys, it's a queer lot different from the darkness. Once in light, that's every Christian. And so the early church after apostolic age, they called baptism illumination because the catechists for baptism were taught the creed and what faith in Christ is and descending into the water were buried with Christ in baptism and coming out into the light just as coming out of the grave is coming out into the newness of life. Just like Christ came out of the grave. He can't die again. He can't be buried again. He can't rise again. And if you've been joined to Christ, you're buried with Christ, you're risen with Christ, you can't repeat any of that. That can't be renewed again. If you even try to renew it, you'd be exposing him to shame. His death didn't work the first time. His blood wasn't sufficient. No, if you've been joined to Christ, you're safe in Christ. And if you fall, all you have to do is repent. Repent. It's not impossible to repent. But it's impossible be to be renewed again unto repentance. As one to be newly baptized. That's impossible. So saints have to walk in the light now. And learn and discover more through it. But you can't repeat it. And you can't go through it all again. This coming out of the darkness. This coming out of the grave. This coming out of death. It's like the miracle of our Lord in Bethsaida. Do you remember that strange miracle? The blind man. The Lord opened his eyes. Can you see? I can't see. But people are just like trees walking. Can't see clearly. It's a lot different than the darkness. And that's, that's, that was a healing in stages. And that was an unusual miracle. But at stages do picture the true Christian. He has his eyes opened at first conversion. He sees it's a new world. The darkness is gone. We don't see all. There's remaining blindness to some degree. And more and more we begin to see. Until the full perfect day whenever we see everything so clearly. But it's that, that initial conversion. Once in mind. Once in mind. So even that blind man in Bethsaida could say once I was blind but now I see. Even though it may be trees, men as trees walking. And so congregation. You see then that we don't have to be terrified if we sin and fall we don't have to be frightened by this verse 
Oh, is that backsliding? Is it, is it a sin that is, is it such a sin that I brought shame to Christ that, that I can't repent? No, no, that's not what it means. You can repent and you must repent of every sin. Repentance is not impossible. Repentance is not impossible for the child of God. But this renewing unto repentance, this laying the foundation again, this being joined to Christ again in baptism and being united to him again in burial and in death and in resurrection, that's not repeatable. Because if you try to repeat that, what does that say about Christ's death? What does that say about his resurrection? It failed! It failed at the once enlightenment. It failed at the conversion stage. It failed at your initial union to Christ. And you have to renew it again. No. You don't. You're joined to Christ. You have union with Christ. Every sin, every backsliding, every falling away. Confess and repent. And you'll be freshly cleansed. But you don't need to be saved again. And the church certainly won't baptize you again. It's impossible. I think this is the meaning of the text. Or something along these lines. It's a very difficult text. But let us close with this thought. A few thoughts. Sinners need this enlightenment. They need this conversion. They need this illumination of grace. And we have to pray that sinners will be enlightened. That the light of the gospel will shine into their darkened hearts. That the light of the gospel will shine into the devil's dark kingdom. Let us pray that the light will shine. And that the eyes of the blind will be opened. And that men will be converted. And also, child of God, remember the privilege and blessing you have in your union to Christ. You know, you know that you see now. You know what it was like to be saved. You saw your heart. You saw Christ as the only Savior. That's that slight. And if you do sin and fall, that never changes. You still know he's a Savior. You still know his blood washes you and cleanses you. You'll never be in the darkness like you ever you were before. You have that light. So always repent of your sins. And don't ever think that you can fall away to such an extent that you can never be forgiven and never find repentance. You'll always find repentance, child of God. So don't let this verse trouble you. Don't let it scare you or frighten you by misunderstanding it. Bless God. I once was blind, but now I see. May he bless these words to you. Let us pray.